This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for April 15th, 2010. We're broadcasting out of the University of Manitoba radio stations and we can be found at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. On the program today, I'll have a conversation with John Clark. He is an organizer of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty and he'll be reviewing the Ontario Provincial Budget. Also, I'll have a conversation with Professor Darlene Yuska. She is one of 16 University of Regina professors who have signed a letter opposing Project Hero. And I'll be chatting with Arthur Manuel, a spokesperson for the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade, and his opinion on Tom Flanagan's proposal to privatize First Nations reserves. Plus, we'll have the alert headlines. Music is the weapon. And around the left. That and much more. And now the alert headlines for the week of April 15th, 2010. Senior diplomat Richard Colvin says Canadian officials didn't want to deal with the high risk of detainees being abused and tortured in Afghan custody when he was working there in 2006 and 2007. In testimony Tuesday before the civilian-run Military Police Complaints Commission, Colvin also said he discovered the International Committee of the Red Cross had a serious problem keeping track of prisoners during his first visit to Kandahar Province's main prison in 2006. Colvin sparked a political firestorm last November when he told a Commons committee that all detainees transferred to Afghan prisons were likely tortured by Afghan officials. He has alleged government and military officials were well aware of the problem. Two more Alberta First Nations are seeking the assistance of the Supreme Court of Canada in defending their Aboriginal and treaty rights in the face of mounting tar sands development in Alberta. The Supreme Court of Canada has granted intervener status to Duncan's First Nation and Horse Lake First Nation. It is believed that the case could have major legal implications for the development of tar sands, pipelines and tar sands infrastructure projects. This summer, the Supreme Court will hear conflicting arguments and views of First Nations governments and industry in the Rio Tinto Elcon Incorporated versus the Carrier Sakani Tribal Council case. The case will address the question of whether regulatory boards and tribunals, such as the National Energy Board, have a duty to decide whether the Crown adequately consulted and accommodated First Nations concerns before granting approvals for resource development. The Energy Board regulates development of the oil sands, pipeline projects and other energy projects that support tar sands developments. Stephen Harper's doubts about the mission in Afghanistan are reinforced in a new poll showing Canadians overwhelmingly reject the American request to extend our military effort. The ECOS survey also shows Canadians no longer support the military mission in Afghanistan. It also comes on the heels of a surprising commitment by Defence Minister Peter McKay, who is in Kabul, to send another 90 troops for training. 
The poll question about extending the mission was inspired by U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's bold request in a CTV interview last week for Canada to remain in Afghanistan past its 2011 deadline. The Harper government has repeatedly said the military mission will not be extended past that date. Hundreds of Afghan protesters took to the streets of Kandahar earlier this week, only hours after at least five civilians were killed in a U.S. attack. According to witnesses, U.S. forces opened fire on a passenger bus just as the bus began pulling over to the side of the road to allow another military convoy to pass. Another 18 civilians were wounded. Protesters burned tires and blocked a main road leading out of Kandahar. One protester said the shootings were unprovoked. The Pakistani government has confirmed media reports up to 71 civilians were killed in a weekend military strike near the Afghan border. Most of the victims are said to have died when Pakistani jets bombed a house where dozens had gathered to help the wounded from an earlier attack. A Pakistani government official said the military was acting on wrong intelligence. The attack comes as part of the Pakistani government's ongoing U.S.-backed military offenses against Taliban-linked militants. On Monday, the United Nations said over 200,000 civilians have recently fled northwest Pakistan to escape the fighting. The U.N. says it's facing a major funding shortfall to aid the displaced people, having received only 20% of a $538 million appeal. The Canadian author Margaret Atwood has been awarded the Dan David Prize at Tel Aviv University. As an outspoken advocate on everything from censorship to poverty to women's equality, many human rights activists around the world are hoping Ms. Atwood will join the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign and decline the award. John Grayson, the filmmaker and activist who recently led the campaign to boycott the Toronto Film Festival in reaction to its uncritical spotlight on Tel Aviv, has drafted the appeal calling on Atwood to decline the award. An award-winning book about a Palestinian girl whose family suffers at the hand of Israeli settlers will remain in Toronto schools after a review by board staff found it does not cross the line into literature promoting hate or animosity towards others. B'nai B'rith Canada had complained the shepherd's granddaughter is vehemently anti-Israel and had asked that the book be removed from Toronto district schools. A different way of fighting global warming will be proposed in the central Bolivian city of Cochabamba when government representatives and thousands of activists gather for the World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth. The social organizations sponsoring the April 19th to 22nd conference have announced an alternative platform to the efforts of the 15th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which ended in failure in Copenhagen in December 2009. The defense of Mother Earth, championed by Bolivian President Evo Morales, has the support of more than 240 grassroots and indigenous movements, non-governmental organizations, activists and intellectuals who are calling for a charter of rights for the planet. And those are the alert headlines for April 15, 2010. And now for Around the Left for April 15th, 2010. 
Home Safe Now is a documentary film that examines the housing crisis in Canada as an expression of the increasing economic and job insecurity that has devastated the manufacturing sector in Toronto and throughout southern Ontario. A free public screening of the film will take place April 19th at the North York Central Library in Toronto. A Q&A to follow and the screening begins at 7 p.m. Regina's annual Environmental Film Festival and Environmental Activist Awards are being held this year at the Royal Saskatchewan Museum on April 23rd and 24th. Films are being screened on both Friday the 23rd and Saturday the 24th. The awards ceremony begins at 8.15 on the 23rd. Films being screened include a series of shorts, The Story of Stuff, The Story of Cap and Trade, The Story of Bottled Water, as well as full-length documentaries, Refugees of the Blue Planet, and Taking Back Control of Our Food. Admission for both days is free. Psych Out, a conference for organizing resistance against psychiatry, takes place May 7th and May 8th at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. The purpose of this conference is to provide a forum for psychiatric survivors, mad people, activists, scholars, students, radical professionals and artists from around the world to come together and share experiences of organizing against psychiatry. Speakers include Dr. Bonnie Burstow, David Oakes, Peter Lehman and Dan Taylor. Ottawa's annual Canadian Dimension Dinner fundraiser has now been named in honour of Gil Levine. This year's Gil Levine Memorial Dinner is on May 8th at the Plant Recreation Centre in Ottawa. Sam Gindin will be the featured speaker and will discuss rebuilding the left in a capitalist recession. Tickets are $50 per person and include a one-year subscription to Canadian Dimension magazine. To find out how to purchase tickets, click on events at CanadianDimension.com. During the month of May, people from across the country will be celebrating labour in the arts as part of annual Mayworks and May Day festivals. Toronto's Mayworks Festival begins April 24th and runs until May 2nd. The annual May Day Banquet in Winnipeg is being held at the Fort Gary Hotel on May the 2nd. For more Mayworks events, check out the events page at CanadianDimension.com. And that's Around the Left for April 15th, 2010. If you enjoyed the show, please consider picking up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine on newsstands now. Our latest issue focuses on the characters, culture, and politics of our Winnipeg. Guest edited by acclaimed Winnipeg filmmakers Guy Mannon and Noam Gonick, the issue comes with a set of collectible Winnipeg alternative celebrity baseball cards. Order a subscription online today at CanadianDimension.com. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. Ontario's finance minister brought down the Ontario provincial budget a few weeks ago. Like all governments in this country and elsewhere, its main concern is to hold down the deficit. To help alert listeners get a handle on this budget, we have contacted John Clark, organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. Welcome to Alert Radio, John Clark. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. We will get you to talk about the specifics of the budget in a moment, and in particular, its impact on poverty in the province. But first, how would you characterize the provincial economic strategy in the context of so-called recovery from the worst recession in over 70 years? Well, I mean, what really has happened internationally in the Ontario budget is no exception, is that we've gone through a particular phase 
after decades of being told that deficits and debts were, were absolutely unacceptable under any circumstances and expectations like being educated and having your health taken care of and having decent income were all unaffordable luxuries, uh, all of a sudden money is no object and there's money to throw at banks and corporations and failed financial institutions and what have you and uh, the deficit and the debt suddenly gets, uh, gets racked up and uh, now, all of a sudden, uh, we've gone we've gone in for a sort of a, a spate of what has been characterised as neo neoliberalism, where uh, they're uh, they're coming to uh, to take this back, but not, of course, from the people they gave it to, but to uh, take it back from uh, from poor people and working people. And the uh, Ontario budget budget falls into that sort of uh, broad strategy. Well, what are the main measures the budget takes to restrain the provincial deficit? We are. Uh, we're dealing with, um, uh, as an anti-poverty coalition, we're focused on what has been done to, to poor people and people on social assistance. Um, they have, uh, this is a government that, is, that must be judged according to a standard that they have set of uh, preparing uh, f- uh, measures of poverty reduction, pre- preparing to deal with, with questions of poverty. We've heard interminable promises all along but now what has happened is is that they have actually they've actually cut social assistance uh they've given a one percent increase below the rate of inflation uh this year um which translates to about ten dollars per month for a family um but what they've also done is they've eliminated something called the special diet now the special diet was uh, a program that we had a great role in in promoting and expanding. Uh, basically, it's a, a system under which if people on social assistance are told by a medical provider that they need additional money for food in order to uh, to take care of their health, um, they can receive up to two hundred and fifty dollars a month extra. And uh, this had become uh, had gone from in 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 two thousand and five a six million dollar program to a two hundred million dollar program. And uh, they've eliminated it. Now, that means, in effect, uh, that you have uh, approximately a 3% cut for people on social assistance. And it's quite incredible that this Dalton McGuinty government that speaks in terms of poverty reduction is, in fact, only the third government in the history of the province of Ontario to actually cut assistance to, uh, to poor people. So, and it's happening at a time when the need has never been greater, when more and more people are in need of social assistance. And it's going to really lead to, uh, it's not overly dramatic to say that it's going to kill people. It's going, to, uh, it's going to deny people their health. It's going to cause people to be evicted. It's going to shorten lives. It's, a, it's a, an, an appalling measure. And we're very concerned to, uh, we're very concerned to, uh, to take it up. Uh, we see it as part of an overall attack on uh, on public services uh, in this province that we can only expect to uh, uh, intensify in the uh, in, in the uh, in the coming budgets, and we we hope that uh, the mobilisation we're taking up on this front can become part of a real uh, a real common front to uh, to challenge the Liberals. John Clark, you are an organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, but I'd still like to ask you about the. Wage freeze in the public sector in Ontario. Now, this is what's proposed to happen here in Manitoba, uh, a freeze on public sector wages. Can you talk about that? 
Well, it's a, it is, of course, a, a part of an overall... Uh, we, we spoke at the beginning about, uh, about, about really essentially who's going to pay for this crisis that has emerged within the, uh, within the system. And uh, the targeting of public sector workers, I think, is very, very, uh, is very, very central to that, uh, to that strategy. Um, they've already gone after workers in the private sector quite extensively, but now we're seeing the fight uh, against public sector workers uh, stepped up. Um, and so this budget is very, very much part of that. Um, I mean, we're an anti-poverty coalition. We represent primarily poor people, but we do see ourselves as part of the, the working class movement. And our perspective is not simply to lift some people a little bit up out of poverty, but to fight for decent standards of living and decent, decent wages for, uh, for, for working class people generally. So we, we, we stand very much in solidarity with the public sector workers in Ontario, and we hope that we can... Uh, that we can forge a real uh, united fight back against uh, against this attempt to impose uh, the cost of the crisis on working people. John Clark, can you talk about the relative decline uh, of the contribution of business taxes in Ontario? Well, um, I mean that that of course is is one of the features of what is uh, of what is going on is that um, is that there is no uh, there is no sense that. Uh, that a share of this burden is going to be imposed on uh, on on the corporate sector. Quite the reverse, the uh, the, re- the reduction of taxes for corporations and indeed for the personally wealthy has been a has been a major feature um, in in Ontario in terms of social assistance. Uh, there was a massive uh, cutback under the uh, the Harris Tories in the 90s to social assistance that has been maintained by the uh, been maintained by the uh, the Liberal government. But the whole point about it is is that, that precisely those resources were uh, were used to fuel uh, absolutely unprecedented uh, 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 tax cuts for uh, for corporations and the rich. Um, how about tuition fees in Ontario, John Clark? Um, Again, um, just uh, last week, actually, I was uh, I was at a, a rally of uh, students at the University of Toronto, and uh, uh, that precisely is uh, is another is another strong element of what is of what is happening. Is is that there is very very serious underfunding of post secondary education, and it is leading to the institutions in post secondary education, which are increasingly being corporatized. Uh, very, very uh, readily uh, seeking to pass that on to uh, to students uh, in the form of, uh, of tuition increases. Uh, I mean, we we uh, would certainly support the struggles of students uh, from the standpoint of those who are there in, in 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 university and college. But we also think that it it speaks to the kind of society that's being built when something like post secondary education is uh, becomes increasingly the preserve of people that have money and people that have wealthy families. And that's literally what's being uh, what's being uh, developed here in Ontario. And it's certainly not unique to Ontario. Can you tell our listeners across the country where they can get more information about about your coalition? Yes, uh, we can be uh, we can be reached by checking our website, which is uh, ocap.ca, and uh, people can also call us at four one six nine two five six nine three nine. Well, John Clark, thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Alert Radio. We're broadcasting at UMFM and can be found at CanadianDimension.com.
Sixteen University of Regina professors have signed a letter to University of Regina President Vianne Timmons protesting the university's support for Project Hero. Under the program, which the school launched several weeks ago, children of members of the military who died while on active duty receive free tuition for four years as well as $1,000 for books. Rick Hillier, a co-founder of Project Hero and one of the most controversial figures in recent military history of this country, was the first to introduce Project Hero at a Canadian post-secondary institution just after he took up the post as Chancellor of Memorial University of Newfoundland. Since then, a, num a number of other public Canadian universities have come on board. The professor's opposition to Project Hero has sparked a storm of public comment, mostly opposed to the professor's stand. Here to talk to Radio Alert about the controversy we have on the phone from her home in Regina, Professor Darlene Yuska. Professor Yuska, you are one of the 16 professors that signed the statement opposing your university's participation in Project Hero. Why did you sign the statement? Um, well, I signed the statement for several reasons. Um, the first and foremost, um, I am against war in and of itself. And um, so, and I've written about this before. Uh, I wrote a piece, an article, well, it's not an article, a chapter, pardon me, in, in my text, um, Political Bodies, Body Politic. And <clears throat> one of the things I say in there is that one notes that many of those who would be and are soldiers, whom warriors, are young men. These young men anticipate the cold embrace of death for ideals, for kings, for causes, for nations. They will bleed out their life's blood as one more sacrifice for the good of the whole. They are the sons who are the willing sacrifices for the fathers. And so I've always really took that position that the young men and women um, who put their lives on the line, they, their lives are, are lost. They're gone. They're, there's no reclaiming what was taken away. A life has ended there. So I, I have been always against the idea of, to my mind, and this is rhetorical uh, flourish, of course, of throwing our young people in, in front of the war bus. I am also against um, the war um, against Project Hero um, because, in many ways, I think it legitimates the invasion of Afghanistan. And I think it does that on the pretext of bringing freedom or democracy to Afghanis. But that, that freedom and democracy is, is at the end of a gun, and, and I'm not, I, I, I don't sign on for that. And how many Afghanis have died through what is called collateral damage? And, and these are lives lost, and they number in the thousands, and they're made up of men, women, children, and babies. So, for example, NATO-led forces, they killed five Afghani civilians, including three women, two who were pregnant, during a botched night raid in, in February. Um, they tried to cover this up, and it was revealed. They, they tried to discredit the journalist who, who apps, you know, sort of blew uh, apart uh, their story on this event. Um, and, and there was uh, recently another incident we had a couple days ago where we have a bus with Afghanis on the bus. We have four people who were killed. We have 12 who were injured because a convoy of, of uh, trucks were going by, military trucks going by, and by the third or fourth one. Shooting broke out, and people were killed and, and uh, wounded. And I, I think in my mind, I say, you know, this is, that's, I can't sign on for this. 
And I, I, to tell you the truth, I would be bloody horrified if the U.S. or some other country invaded Canada on the basis that, like, for example, our borders are porous or that terrorists or cells are set up around the country. And, and then from this point on, they begin a war in and around all of us, the civilian body, who are now going to start dying in droves or end up in prisons, you know, as, as potential terrorists regardless of their ages. And we've seen this in terms of the torture that has occurred in Iraq and we know is going in, uh, on in Afghanistan. Now, you know, and we also know Canada doesn't have hidden and valuable resources that other countries want, you know, such as oil, uncontaminated by sand, of course. And so uh, we won't face this issue, but surely this is what's happened in Afghanistan. I'd like to get back to the issue of Project Hero, uh, uh-huh. which is... Uh, sure. Yes, can you talk about, uh, for the record, are there not other scholarships available for, for the children of soldiers killed in Afghanistan? And if so, which we believe to be the case, mm-hmm. why do you think General Hillier co-founded Project Hero? Well, I, we know there are, and we've, we've responded to those who've criticized us in emails, and we also informed the main, mainstream media as well, many of who ignored us. Um, that there are that we're aware of. Um, we have several that are, are operative, one through the vets, the Children of Deceased Veterans Education Assistance is, is one particular fund. There's also, I believe it's called the Canada Fund, and, and that again is our Canada Company. And that one again is, and that's a private institution, it's not government. So we have government support of, of children, uh, whose, whose parents uh, or a parent has, has been killed in action and deceased in war. So we do have, we do have uh, 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 scholarships in place or money in place to assist these folks. So uh, why did General Hillier feel the need to found Project Hero? Well, I think Project Hero is about turning around Canada and how we think about war. We, for a long time, and, and whether or not this is completely true or not, like, you know, I don't want to get into that sort of argument, but, you know, Canada was peacekeepers. We would be part of the whole UN effort, and we would go in and, and do peacekeeping. Um, we became non-nuclear, you know, Trudeau, and so we, we have this orientation. And so one of the things I think he is doing is ramping up this sort of militarism where the military is lifted above everyone else in the social body and deemed to be above all error and and anything that they do is is not questionable and and so it then is cast in this sort of discourse of of supporting soldiers i support young men and women i support human beings but i i do not support you know, systems of domination. And I think soldiers get pulled into this. So one of the things that Hillier is doing, to my mind, is, is really making this whole kind of, uh, you know, movement into the global uh, realm and, and, and you know, uh, occupying countries, uh, making this something that, that we'd sign on for, that it would be, you know, something that we wouldn't uh, resist. So if we move down this road, we, we just, you know, think of ourselves as what? Bringing freedom and democracy at the end of a gun. 
I, I, I don't, that's not my Canada. This is Alert Radio, and we're speaking to Darlene Yuska. She is one of 16 professors uh, from the University of Regina who have signed a letter opposing Project Hero. I'd like to ask you now about the public response to your statement. Mm. Uh, give us some of the specific examples of what is being said. Well, uh, we, we had in the Globe and Mail that basically we were against orphans, that we were against soldiers, um, that, that we were elitists in the ivory tower who really didn't understand the lives of, of everyday people. Um, and so really that was in terms of the media, in terms of the kinds of response we got in the emails, um, a lot of them were vitriolic, and so it was really hate mail, as we called it. Some of them were legitimate questioning of our position and wanting to understand more, and so we provided them with information that we could give them. Others were letters of support. Um, but basically, in the mainstream media, we were really, the letter was never given in detail. Only bits and pieces were taken out. When we tried to explain our position, uh, I saw this with uh, an interview with CTV and Garson. He's cut off because he's not responding in the way that they want. Um, so this is some of the kind of response that we've, we've faced. Uh, well, here is your forum to answer your critics, Professor Yuska. Yes. Well, we have, and, and I'm just like rattling through all my papers here because my cat walked across them all and sent them flying. Um, there is a petition site, and it's at the Care2 petition site, and it's called Stand Against Project Hero. So if you go there, you can sign on to this petition. And what this petition urges is Canadian universities and colleges not to participate in Project Hero, a program in which post-secondary institutions waive tuition and course fee fees for children of fallen soldiers. And then, as we know, that we, we, they have benefits through the Children of Deceased Veterans Education Assistance, and that was passed in 1993, along with other private institutions that provide support. Well, Professor Yuska, I'd like to thank you for joining us on Alert Radio. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed being on. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. In a recent speech to the Frontier Centre, a right-wing policy group, Tom Flanagan, University of Calgary political science professor and former chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, has floated the idea that giving Aboriginal people the right to own property on reserves could help cure poverty of First Nations people. To check this out, Alert contacted former Nesconleth chief Arthur Manuel, who is spokesperson for the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade. Welcome to Alert, Arthur Manuel. Uh, thank you. Before we get to your opinion, um, Arthur, about Tom Flanagan's idea, give our listeners a quick rundown on the current legal situation on reserves. Well, basically, Indian reserves are uh, federal uh, crown property. Uh, basically, Indigenous people, uh, you know, in a technical sense, uh, from a legal kind of perspective, from the federal point of view, uh, they really don't own any land per se, in, in, in Canada, you know. Okay. Nevertheless, the Indian reserves are supposedly held in trust for, for Indians, but under in a, in a kind of a trust relationship. But that trust is pretty strained by the in, 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 uh, inadequacies of the Department of Indian Affairs. And so in your opinion, um, Arthur, is it a fact that Aboriginals not having property rights on reserves may contribute to their poverty? 
Well, no, there's no question, not just in relationship to Indian reserves, uh, but in terms more in terms of our territorial interests. You know, uh, indigenous people basically own either their land through treaties or under Aboriginal title, and it just doesn't. Uh, it is just. It is not just contained with the Indian reserve system, and and that's what we've been fighting for is is recognition for Aboriginal recognition of Aboriginal treaty rights at a sort of a macroeconomic level. And so from what I'm hearing you say, would it be your view then that conf- that converting reserves into private property could actually help economic development and housing on reserves? No, no, you're hearing me <laughs> exactly opposite to what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, the what uh, Flanagan and, and those other guys, the white paper policy, and the Indian Act, Revision Act, and all these other things that have went on, basically want to privatize Indian land under the framework of federal and provincial crown, okay. uh, you know, framework. And, and that's wrong because uh, Aboriginal treaty rights are pre-existing proprietary interests that need to be recognized in relationship not just to the Indian Reserve, but in relationship to the treaty territory, and that's where that's where the federal uh, government has totally failed in, in doing that. Okay, and so property reform, okay, has some support among First Nations chiefs, Grand Chief Ron Evans in Manitoba, for instance, and Manny Jules, a former chief from Kamloops, B.C., Evans says he supports it, providing Ottawa makes good on long-stand treaty obligations to share oil, timber, water, and mineral resources on traditional First Nation land. So what's your comment on that? I think uh, to a certain extent he's saying similar to what I'm talking about, but I don't know if he's really delineating uh, in the economic sense the sort of macroeconomic aspect of treaty interests in the microeconomics that the that Manny Jules and those guys are talking about in relationship to Indian Reserve proprietary interests because you know the Indian Reserve is 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 a community and you can talk about it in some microeconomic aspects about setting up a business owning a house doing this kind of other stuff but you need to talk about the territory cuz that's what he's talking about I guess suppose what he's talking about in terms of recognition of long standing out uh, you know treaty rights you know so okay. the, I think that's the the difference. I don't know if he's got it totally uh, crystallized yet in terms of that kind of thinking, but uh, there has to be some major development, I think, in, in, in that kind of thinking. And so in regards to these treaty obligations, can you go into a little more detail about those? Well, the treaty obligation is Winnipeg and uh, all the prairies uh, are, um, are treaty territories, uh, you know, whether you're living on or off the reserve, you know. Uh, the thing is, is that the the, the Canadian and the uh, government hasn't really recognized those treaties. So most Canadians sort of say, "Well, we own this land, you know, uh, lock, stock, and barrel kind of thing, and we can set up a provincial government, we can set up a municipality, and we don't need to even think about the, our treaty obligations with respect to the, the to the, the Indian people who actually own the underlying title right. of the land where we live." And so. That's what I'm talking about is that's where, where Canadians totally fail, you know, and, the, and they've been actually, uh, rec- uh, you know, condemned to a certain extent by the international community in terms of recognition of, uh, of Aboriginal treaty rights, you know. Right. And that's the same in British Columbia. We don't have treaties, but the land that everybody lives on, like here in Vernon, uh, they, uh, they're living on Okanagan land, you know, but they don't recognize that, you know. 
Uh, and then they sort of say, well, Indian people should live on Indian reserves, and uh, and then they recognize that. But they're, what they're really recognizing there is the dispossession of Indigenous people, and dispossessing people is a human rights violation. Right. And that's something that Canadians don't really realize is when they talk about Indian reserves and, and those kinds of things is that they're talking about uh, Indian people being dispossessed. And that's where the impoverishment comes in because we're expected to live on these Indian reserve communities and uh, you can't because the, the the community doesn't have the economic resource base to support the populations that live on them, you know, right. and the rest of the people that live in the territory, whether it be a treaty territory, an Aboriginal title territory, they're the ones that have uh, complete access and benefits to all the rest of the land. That's how Canada has been ranked at level one, according to the United Nations Human Development Index. Right. And then when Indian people are registered on Indian reserves, we're registered 78.5, you know, so that's systemic, I call that uh, the, the entrenchment of a systemic poverty uh, of Indian people. And it's through that poverty, through putting Indian, dispossessing Indian people of their land, putting us in Indian, Indian reserves where we live on 78.5% human development index, that kind of poverty is, is why Canada can be rich and live at level one. You know, Indian people are basically subsidizing uh, Flanagan and all those other guys to be wealthy people. And so you've mentioned Tom Flanagan again. Let's talk a little bit more about what lies behind his proposal, Arthur. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's privatization of Indian reserves. That's what he wants to do. It's the same thing that sort of Naomi Klein talked about in the shock doctrine, you know, privatization of, of schools and after Miami and this kind of thing. He's sort of saying the privatized system can actually uh, get people off in you know, poverty on Indian reserves. No, it'll actually wind up Indian people moving to Portage and Maine, Hastings and Maine. You know, Indian people wouldn't be able to pay the taxes on those lands, you know? Right, I'm hearing you. And then, you know, it's a, it's the last Indian land grab uh, what Flanagan's talking about. He's laughing all the way to the bank because some Indian people are actually listening to me. Yeah. Guy. So let's, let's take your opinion then for, for the last question, Arthur, and let us know your answer. Answer. Let us let our listeners know what your answer is to poverty on First Nations reserves. Well, one of the things is recognition of Aboriginal treaty rights. You know, because you know the reason we're poor is because we have been dispossessed of the land. That's where the poverty comes from. So, and, and the international community and Indian people have always been saying that recognize the underlying proprietary interest of Indian people in this territory, in, in our own homeland. You know. Right. And let us start working on a on a, a system based upon, let's say, like what uh, the Supreme Court says here in BC, the recognition of Aboriginal title, and what the Canadian Constitution says under Section 35.1 that says that the federal and provincial government are supposed to uh, acknowledge and affirm and recognize Aboriginal treaty rights. They don't do that, you know. Right. Start with the basics. Start answering some of the basic macroeconomic issues involving Aboriginal treaty rights and start being honest with Indigenous people and just quit trying to steal land from the hook left, right, and center and, and, and leave Indian people on the economic margins. That's the way things have been done in the past. That has to change. That's where I sort of think we address poverty at the community level. Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, Arthur, for joining us today and for your insight uh, into this uh, ongoing issue. Uh, we'll have you back for sure. All right. Thank okay, you. thanks very much. Okay, bye. And that was Arthur Manuel, who is the spokesperson for the Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade.
Alert Radio is the official podcast of Canada's leading progressive political magazine, Canadian Dimension. If you'd like to order a subscription to Canadian Dimension, go to our website at canadiandimension.com or pick up our latest issue on newsstands today. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is a Weapon, and today's show, Death by Imperialism. Here to start is Bruce Coburn. Here comes the helicopter, second time today, everybody scatters, and hopes it goes away. They murdered Only God can say
That was The Disappeared, sung by Christy Moore, the great Irish folk singer. And before that, Bruce Coburn singing If I Had a Rocket Launcher. I always liked that song, you know, it really sort of uh, has some grit to it, you know. It, uh, a lot of songs that a lot of people write don't have very much grit. They've got a lot of good intentions, but you don't hear a lot of grit in songs. And so Bruce Coburn has always uh, made me happy with that one. Um Cy Conn has got a great song called El Norte. I don't know if how many of you people remember the movie El Norte. It was about a young brother and sister who were trying to sneak into the United States and they crawled through this tunnel and they ran into a bunch of rats. And it was one of the most horrifying movies I've ever seen in terms of what working people have to do to get through the borders stuck up there by the bourgeoisie and stuff. It's really interesting to hear the song by Cy Conn, El Norte. For weeks we hid in ditches, for weeks we crawled through fields, for weeks we slept by day and ran by night. We sweated up the mountains, we shivered through the swamps, till finally El Norte came in sight. Across the bloody border, along the barbed wire fence, the searchlights on the towers turn and shine. Are you keeping freedom in? Are you keeping freedom out with your guns and dogs along the borderline? Lying in the bushes, my daughter by my side, I watch the searchlights flashing off the guns. Do I tell her to go back when there's nothing left behind? Do I tell her just to close her eyes and run? Across the bloody border, along the barbed wire fence, the searchlights on the towers turn and shine. Are you keeping freedom in? Are you keeping freedom out with your guns and dogs along the borderline? Now tell me, who makes the borders? Who draws the maps? Who strings barbed wire through the land? Who buys the bullets? Who pays the guards? Who puts the rifles in their hands? Across the bloody border, along the barbed wire fence, the searchlights on the towers turn and shine. Are you keeping freedom in? Are you keeping freedom out? With your guns and dogs along the borderline. With your guns and dogs along the borderline Another Humvee hits an IED And there with the damage it did Another young soldier who can't hold a lover Or play patty cake with a kid the quick action team gets him out of the field Back to the States to get buried or healed The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war 
lying at night under pale moonlight where the doctors are all standing by in a preemptive mood to patch up a wound and salvage another GI another of ours that won't dance anymore another young soldier come back from the war sins of the father live on in the sun and they're still coming back from the war Pentagon brief never talks about grief or the soldier come back from the war or what he might need while he's at Walter Reed or the reason they sent him there for another young soldier got shot up and screwed what will you pay for a barrel of crude? The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war Now time has a way of slipping away To a place where the memories fade Except for the few that still pass in review Or march at the veterans parade Another old soldier still there in the past Watching the flag going by at half-mast The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war The sins of the father live on in the sun The sins of the father live on in the sun the sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war That was Sins of the Father, sung by Bob and Diane Sukiel, who are, well, Bob's a railway worker. He's a, he's a, a locomotive driver in Kansas City and a union militant and a great writer. And before that, El Norte, sung and composed by Sai Khan. I think we've had so many depressing songs today, and I think there's time to finish off the show, and I think we're going to finish it off with something with a positive note. Here is Harry McClintock with his classic Big Rock Candy Mountain. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking And he said, boys, I'm not turning I'm headed for a land that's far away Beside the crystal fountains So come with me, we'll go and see The big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains There's a land that's fair and bright Where the handouts grow on bushes And you sleep out every night Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees The lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains All the cops have wooden legs And the bulldogs all have rubber teeth And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs The farmer's trees are full of fruit And the barns are full of hay Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. 
the brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short handle shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the big rock candy mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. That was Harry McClintock with his classic song, The Big Rock Candy Mountain. And that's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Keep on picking. And that is Alert Radio for April 15th, 2010. Remember, you can find us at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And we hope you'll join us again next week. See you then. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Badolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com.